Hey there, thank you so much for being here for our special simulcast edition of the Big Time Talker podcast and Zoom into books with our friends from Headline Books. The program is service of our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. In-person speaking events are back in 2022. So if you are a platform speaker or you're a meeting planner, you can find one another at speakermatch.com. What else is back? Baseball is back. It looked dicey there for a while, but you can now hear the crack of the bat at ballparks all over the country. And noted baseball historian Peter Golenbach joins us today on the program. Peter is the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including his new one, Whispers of the Gods, where he uh, has in-person interviews with, uh, gosh, some of the biggest names in baseball history. Peter Golenbach joins us from his home in Florida. Peter, thank you for being here. What is it about baseball that that touches a man, woman, and child so much? Why, why is baseball what it is? Well, it's because if you're born with the baseball gene, uh, you have this lucky love of the game that lasts you your entire life. Uh, it's more important than any religion. Uh, it's it's something that fills you with great joy, um, and it uh, almost never disappoints you. If you're listening to the podcast, which, by the way, is, is downloadable on all the big podcast platforms, uh, you're not able to see the visual that I can see as I, I look at Peter in his home office there. And if you happen to be watching the, the podcast online, you can see all the baseball memorabilia behind you. You have that, that lifetime baseball gene, um, but I wonder if you can take us back and paint a picture of your very first big league baseball game. What do you remember about that, that game? Well, the, 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 the first baseball game that I remember uh, took place in September of 1956. Uh, my uncle Justin took me to see the 1956 World Series game, the fourth game between the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Wow. And after the game, we went down to the Dodger locker room. My uncle Justin was Jackie Robinson's attorney. Unbelievable. And Jackie was moving to Stanford, Connecticut, where I live. Right. Okay. And I got to as a 10-year-old, shake hands with probably the most important person in the history of the game of baseball, Jackie Robinson. So that's going to blow pretty much everybody else's whole story out of the water. <laughs> what an amazing thing. And, and is it, even though you were just 10 years old, and that's a fur piece back, are the memories of that day, the smells, the sounds, are they all seared in your memory? Do you remember that day more than many other days of your childhood? You'd have to, right? Well, I mean, what I remember more than anything else was how large he was. You know, my little tiny hand and his giant fist and, <laughs> and just, um, he was a presence. He was a tremendous presence. I mean, there are, there are two important sort of heroes in my baseball life and Jackie was one of them and as a result I wrote uh, Bums which was an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers and as a result of my uncle Justin being Jackie's attorney Rachel Robinson for the first time gave 
somebody an opportunity to interview her about her experiences with Jackie, you know, living out in California when he was at UCLA and then how they met and how they married and how they ended up uh, traveling to um, Florida to, to become a Dodger for the first time. And she was, she was just magnificent. And she was sort of the, um, I thought the most, you know, of all the fabulous interviews I had, Duke Snyder and Carl Farillo and Pee Wee Reese and so forth, uh, she was probably the most important uh, interviewee in that book. And then I also wrote a book called Teammates. Um, it was a story told to me. Let me, let me find, I'm going to look and find his name. Rex Barney was his name. Rex Barney was a pitcher for the Dodgers. And I interviewed Rex for my bums book. Okay. During, during that interview, Rex told me the story of how in Cincinnati and in Philadelphia and in Boston, um, they were they were on the field before the game, and the fans were booing Jackie Robinson because he was black. Right. And as they were booing, Pee Wee Reese, who was from Louisville, Kentucky, a Southerner himself, walked across the field. Jackie was the first baseman. Pee Wee was the shortstop. Pee-wee walked across the field and put his arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulders in front of all of those fans. And Rex told me that when he did that, suddenly the ballpark was silent. Wow. It was an amazing, amazing story that he told me. And I, I, I turned that into a, a children's book called Teammates, uh, though I must say adults seem to like it as much as the children do. Well, sure, sure. Baseball historian Peter Goldenbach, New York Times bestselling author, is our guest today. His new book is Whispers of the Gods, available at Amazon.com, uh, bookstores everywhere. And I was, I was looking up the stats on this thing. It was the number one new release in baseball biographies, top 30 in sports history, uh, top 30 in, in baseball books overall. So congratulations on the new book. Um, Thank Peter, you. I, I want to ask you, since we started talking about your Uncle Justin and, and Jackie Robinson, was, was your Uncle Justin, uh, uh, they're, they're very common today, but an attorney who represented lots of professional athletes? Is that, was that his job? Uh, he was an entertainment attorney. Okay. Uh, he, he represented uh, a number of, you know, famous people. Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of his name. He, 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 he was a swordsman in the movies. Um, it's, it's 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 embarrassing that i can't think of his name he was he was like errol flynn one of those guys him. it was errol, oh, flynn. Was it errol flynn? flynn he was errol flynn's attorney yeah. wow. yes he was errol flynn's attorney and uh i i don't know the names of his others but uh golenbach burrell among other things they represented uh, uh entertainment figures okay and uh, you know as as someone who met jackie robinson shortly after he crossed over to play in the majors from the Negro leagues, what was it like in, in that time in America in terms of, of the separation of the races? Now, of course, you're a New York kid, so I'm sure it was much less so there than in other parts of the country. But, but what do you remember about that time and, and certainly how it affected the sport of baseball? Well, it's, it's interesting because one day I was taking a shower and I was thinking to myself, 
how in the world in 1947, when Jim Crow laws were the law of the land, where black people were supposed to be never seen and never heard, right? Could Jackie Robinson possibly come into baseball and somehow not only survive, but become the rookie of the year and later the most valuable player and 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 lead the Dodgers to uh, getting into the World Series in 47, 49, uh, 52, 53, 55, 56. How did he do that? And that prompted me to write a book called The, 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 the Country of Brooklyn. And I, I interviewed about 20 people who were from Brooklyn, from different walks of lives and different professions. Um, the head of the ACLU came from Brooklyn. And, and basically, he told me that, uh, you know, his love of Jackie Robinson and seeing how this racism was such nonsense uh, prompted him to go to law school and, and eventually become the head of the ACLU. Wow. And other people talked about how Brooklyn, uh, which was mostly Jewish and Italian and Irish, um, you know, that seemed to be the place where he could have survived. The thought was that uh, if he had started in a place like St. Louis, um, you know, chances are, oh, they would not have had it. I mean, when 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 Branch Rickey took a vote, I mean, they they he he wanted to bring them up, and so there was a vote among the sixteen major league owners, and the vote was fifteen no, and Branch Rickey yes. Wow. The only way that the only way that Robinson got to come there was that at the time, the commissioner was Happy Chandler who had been the governor of the state of Kentucky. He had been a senator from the state of Kentucky. And yet, Chandler said to Ricky, if I die and I don't allow you to bring Robinson up, my maker is not going to be happy. And so he said, you want to bring him up? You bring him up. And naturally, there were threats of boycotts, uh, even on the Dodgers, the Southerners all signed a petition that they weren't going to play if Robinson came up. Uh, Ricky had those people come into his office and said, fine, you know, you don't want to play. Um, you'll be banned from baseball for life. Uh, and, you know, you'll never, you know, never make another penny in the game. And so, so that, that all went away. Those guys fell on the right side of history, but you yeah. make a really good point that yeah. that he was not just the first black player. He was a hell of a baseball player. He was an incredible player. He was. He. I, I just, well, he died in 1972 at age 53. About five days before that, um, they had a ceremony. I think it was, I think it was at Shea Stadium honoring honoring him and he made the comment was i'll be happier when we see an african-american coaching at third base or an african-american you know as a manager in the dugout yeah but it was funny he was 53 he looked like he was 80 i mean the 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 wear and tear of what he went through uh affected him terribly 
baseball historian and New York Times bestselling author. And I'm proud to say my friend, Peter Goldenbach, is our guest today. Uh, the new book is Whispers of the Gods. And Peter talks to legendary baseball players uh, and, and has these incredible first-person interviews with them. I thought about you last week, Peter. I was uh, on business in New York City. And the uh, the big news story that morning was the unveiling of the, the statue of Tom Seaver out in yeah. front of the stadium there, uh, the Miracle Mets. And and I wonder if, if, because you're a wordsmith, you paint these incredible pictures in your books, including the new one about baseball. If you can put into words what it is that makes a player a legend. A lot of guys have played this game, but only some like the Tom Seavers, the Johnny Bench, the Jackie Robinson. So only some of them rise to that status. What is it that makes a player legendary, that makes them timeless like the guys you talk to in Whispers of the Gods? Well, you could argue that Tom Seaver was the best pitcher in Mets history. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you had a feeling that when Tom Seaver took the mound, chances are you were going to win the game. And there are not a lot of those. Not a lot of those at all. Uh, you know, the Sandy Koufaxes, the Bob Gibsons of this world, um, the very, very, very special pitchers. And Seaver was one of those. And it was interesting because Seaver was not, he was not a guy who was a lot of fun. Seaver was one tough, tough cookie. Um, but everybody loved his competitiveness. And obviously they loved, they loved the fact um, that he won. And interestingly enough, there was a point where they traded him away. They traded him to the Cincinnati Reds for four players. And I've interviewed three of those four players, and they all told me that when they came to New York, the fans were not happy to see them. I bet. Not at all. And they were pretty good players. Um, trading Seaver was one of the very worst things that the owners of the Mets ever did to the Mets fans. And only later, about four or five years later, did they trade and get him back. He was, he was sort of uh, past his prime by them. But the fans were certainly happy to get the guy back. When you sit down and talk to these, these legendary players, like Stan Musial, for example, you know, from the book, is there a, um, was there a common thread, Peter, that that you can identify that runs through these these legends in baseball is there anything any commonality any anything they have that that they share oh i've always just found them all to be very intelligent intelligent okay very intelligent the the, the question always is whether or not they're uh open to talk to you right and i've only I, I've interviewed probably 250 different players. I've only had like three. Joe DiMaggio was one of them. Joe DiMaggio absolutely wouldn't allow anybody to interview him. Um, and another one who I thought was going to be that way was Roger Maris. He's in this book as well. Right. Uh, went to his, his beer distributorship in Gainesville to see him, to talk to him. I had sent him a couple of telegrams. I had called on the phone, no response. So I went there to see what was what. And his brother, uh, who ran the beer distributorship in Gainesville, told me that Roger wasn't there and chances are uh, he wasn't going to come back that day. So I figured, okay, 
So I'm not going to get to see Roger, and that's a shame. So I then drove from Gainesville to Atlanta, where um, Cleet Boyer had a bar, the Golden Glove Bar. The Golden Glove. Golden Glove. So I, I called Cleet, and Cleet said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. I'll be there tomorrow at 9 a.m. Meet me at the bar at 9 a.m. So I showed up at 9 a.m. sharp, and I sat there at noon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> no cleats. 6 o'clock at night, sitting there drinking that, that you know, cup of coffee that I was drinking while these other gigantic high school heroes were all sitting around the bar drinking beer. And, and at 9 o'clock at night, Cleet shows up, and who does he show up with but Roger Maris? Cleet was going to Japan the next day, and Roger was one of his closest friends, so Roger came down to be with him. So Cleet says to Roger and me, go sit at the table over there. I'll be over in a few minutes. And I'm sitting across, across the table from Roger. Hi, how are you? You know, good to see you. And I'm kind of reluctant to say to him, you know, can, can I interview you? Sure. Because if he had said no, it sort of would have ruined the evening. So I, I didn't do that. But about two minutes later, Roger said to me, would you like to go outside and talk? And I went, yeah, I would. And we went outside into the parking lot. And I sat on the, on the, the hood of one of the cars there with my little tape recorder. Right. And he talked to me for over an hour. Amazing. It was absolutely, absolutely wonderful and fascinating and interesting. A very, very shy guy. I mean, one of the things he said to me is that he couldn't stand in 1961 while he was breaking Babe Ruth's record. Right. Was that every day, beginning in early June, four or five or six or seven of these reporters would come up to him and say, do you think you can break Babe Ruth's record? And he was just sick of these people. He didn't want, he didn't want journalists bothering him. He right. was that type. He was... He just wanted to play ball and be left alone to the extent that towards the end of the season, uh, one day he found that his hair was falling out. The tension was so great that his hair was falling out. He asked Ralph Houck if he could sit out a game, and he did. And then, of course, he went on to break Babe Ruth's record. He hit 61 home runs in 1961. Right. But he said to me that uh, he, he, he was playing for the Yankees in 1966, his last year with the Yankees. When in one game, he slid home and caught his fingers on the spikes of the umpire and broke his hand. Oh. The Yankees sent him to have his hand x-rayed, and they knew it was broken, but they didn't tell him because they wanted him to keep playing because they needed fans. The Yankees were in last place, and he wanted people to come to the game to see Roger. Get butts in the seats, sure. And that made Roger absolutely furious. And at the end of the season... Roger said to Hauk, Hauk was the general manager, not the manager. Hauk was the general manager. Uh, said to Hauk, um, I'm, I'm quitting. And Hauk said to him, do me a favor. Don't make that announcement until the spring. And if, if, if you do that in the spring, we'll throw a little party for you. So Roger said to me, you know, what, what difference did it make whether I made my announcement now or made my announcement in the spring? So he told Hauk, okay. And a week later, Hauk traded him to the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> the 
it wasn't funny as far as Roger was concerned. Yeah, Roger, it's a good story was, now, not then. He was furious, though Roger helped the Cardinals to penance in 1967 and 1968. Right. And why Roger is not in the Hall of Fame right now, it makes no sense to me, except that Roger was not kind to the reporters and they took it out on him. Um, so, so Roger... Roger told me these stories and, and, and basically he said, you know, nobody pays any attention to me now. And, and that's the way it should be. And that's the way I like it. Yeah, exactly. Our guest is Peter Goldenbach. If you're watching live online, you can send questions in and we'll be happy to talk baseball with, uh, with Peter. If you're listening to the podcast, be sure to check out whispers of the gods, his brand new best-selling book and, uh, and visit him online as well book available bookstores everywhere whisper whispers of the gods also at amazon.com um, interviewing baseball players to a lot of people who are watching and listening right now sounds pretty much like the coolest job on the planet like they should like the players should be paying you to do it because it's it's got to be so much fun how, how did you get into that how did you become a uh, you know this baseball historian this guy that gets to hang out with legendary players well, as I told you, I was born with the baseball gene. When yep. I was about 12 years old, I, I read a book called The New York Yankees by Frank Graham. I went to the Stanford, Connecticut Public Library, and I found this book, and I read it, and I read it again, and I read, I probably read the book, you know, 12 times. I was so enthralled by what Graham was writing about. And when I went to Dartmouth, um, our athletic director was Red Rolfe who was the third baseman for the Yankees in the, in the late thirties and the early forties. And um, Red and I became friends. You know, I wrote articles about him in the, in the local newspaper. Um, he Did was, you take journalism in college, Peter? Is that what no, you're, you're no, saying? No, I, I spent half the time writing for the Dartmouth. I mean, that's, that's what I did. I wrote sports uh, for the New York times. I wrote sports for the, the Boston globe. I just, I guess I was just good at it. So I did it and I loved it. Um, going to Dartmouth to me was like going to summer camp. I mean, I, it was like <laughs> four years of summer camp. It was, I just had so much fun. I, I worked on the newspaper. I skied when I wanted to. My sophomore year, I played on the basketball team. Uh, we played Bill Bradley. They beat us 106 to 46. They beat us That's 90 a bad day. to 33. Um, <laughs> That's know, a bad day. Not bad at all. Um, so, so, you know, I went to law school and a friend of mine was the sports editor of the Stanford Advocate. Okay. So Bobby Kennedy was his name. He was the son of the former NBA commissioner, Kennedy. So I said to Bobby, listen, if you give me credentials to the Yankees, the Mets, the Knicks, the Rangers, the Cosmos, I'll write you free articles. Well, I mean, well, you know, well, I'm in New York. I'm at NYU Law School. I mean, I've got access to all these people. He said, great. So I spent two years on the weekends interviewing the likes of Joe Namath, O.J. Simpson. You know, I became a close friend with Phil uh, um, of the Knicks, uh, Phil Jackson. Yep. There we go. Phil Jackson and I became very close friends. Um I'll never forget one, one uh, St. Patrick's Day, Phil and Dave DeBusher and I went out for lunch, and DeBusher right. had 12 beers. 
Oh my God. He, he weighed about 260 pounds. He was 6'9", 200. No, I, I was just in awe from just sitting and watching that. But I just, <laughs> and, and I also went to law school. You know, I also did that. So, so, so after law school, I worked as a lawyer for six weeks. Doing what kind of law in those six weeks? What this was your was job? Tort law. This was tort law. Okay. Uh, Friedman and Fishman. Friedman gave me a pile of cases and said, you know, look at these cases and tell me what we've got. And so I looked at all the cases and six of them, the statute of limitations had run. This is a six year statute of statute of limitations where they had never looked at these cases. Wow. So I went and told them, I said, I got bad news. You know, <laughs> cases, the statute of limitations. He said to me, call them on the phone and tell them why they don't have a case. So I, <laughs> so I said to him, I quit. <laughs> I did, I quit. So my next job was at Prentice Hall as, as a writer uh, of, of President Nixon's wage and price controls. That's what I did. Every week I wrote about the new rules and regulations for President Nixon's wage and price controls. Oh, that sounds dry. That sounds and dry, like paint peeling dry. After six weeks, I went down to the trade book editor and yeah. I told him I wanted to write a sequel to the New York Yankees by Frank Graham. That book was written about 1946, 47. So I said to him, you know, during the 16 years between 1949 and 1964, the Yankees won 16 pennants and nine world championships. I said, I want to write a book about that. And believe it or not, he gave me a contract. Just I like that. I talked myself into getting a contract. So I went to Yankee Stadium. I spent, oh, three, four months doing the research. They had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of articles that they, the Yankees had saved. And so I went through them all. And when I got finished, it occurred to me very wisely that you can't write a book based on newspaper articles. Got to so, talk to the people. So the Yankees gave me the telephone numbers and the addresses of every one of their former players. Oh, wow. Marty Appel, who was the assistant PR guy. Marty is a good friend of mine. He's still around today. Uh, he gave me that, and off I went. In the next two years, I spent driving around, flying around the country, interviewing Yankees. And that was How are you making a living during this time? Are you still, do you still have the day gig for Prentice Hall? No. No, no, no. I got my first contract. It was for twenty five hundred dollars. That's 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 what Nick Tincheco gave me. OK, then I called him up and I said, Nick, I've got to go see these people. Give me another twenty five hundred. And he did. And then when I finished interviewing and my money ran out, I called him up and I said, Nick, can you give me another twenty five hundred? And he did. And when that money ran out, he gave me another twenty five hundred. And then the, the, the third year of it, um, I went to live. I, I had been the baseball coach at Camp Androscoggin. Uh, Keith Sohn was one of my players. And his, his mother, Vivian, let me live in their house free for a year while I wrote the book. And, and this book comes out. It's successful. Right. And you've never had another job after. You've been a professional writer since then, right? Well, after, after Dynasty, I went to work for, for the Bergen Record. I was working there about 
two years, I had become uh, the assistant night news editor. I was moving up in the world when I got a call, a telephone call from Billy Martin's business manager. In Dynasty, I had written that Billy Martin was as important to the Yankees as Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. And apparently that set something off in Billy that if he was going to write his book, he was going to write a book with that guy. Yeah. With me. And, and um, he wasn't able to do it at the moment, but the business manager had one other client and that was Sparky Lyle. And he said, you know, I said, you know, does, does anybody care what Sparky has to say? He said, I'll tell you what, go down to Fort Lauderdale and go meet with Sparky and go see. And that was the best advice I ever got. So I got on a plane. I was living in Englewood, New Jersey. I flew down to uh, Fort Lauderdale and I'm sitting in the clubhouse. And who am I sitting with? I'm sitting with Reggie Jackson. I'm sitting with Thurman Munson. I'm sitting with Ron Guidry. I'm sitting with Billy Martin and Sparky and, and Bruce Gossage and Mickey Rivers. And it occurred to me, you know, if if Sparky would keep a diary with me during the 1978 season, we might have a pretty good book. And of course, it was an amazing, amazing series. Season. Sure. Uh, at the end, they were tied with the Red Sox. They had this incredible playoff game where they they beat them. And then they went to the World Series against the Dodgers and they beat them. And Sparky was a marvelous storyteller and a great friend. I mean, we're friends to this day. And, and not only that, but Sparky was a little bit miffed because during the offseason, after he had won the Cy Young Award in 77, Steinbrenner, he was making $140,000 a year. Steinbrenner signed Goose Gossage and gave Goose Gossage $2 million. Oh, Sparky knew he was going to lose his closest job, and he did. And so Sparky had no problem saying whatever he knew about Steinbrenner. And he talked about Billy, of course, and uh, Reggie Jackson, who was not a favorite player of his, too. And the whole thing, uh, I was going to call the book um, As the Clubhouse Turns, what I was going <laughs> to yeah. call the book, which I still think is a pretty good title. Made me laugh. But my, my, my editor... One day, as I'm finishing this thing, he says to me, I've got a better title. And I said to him, Larry, what is it? He says, the Bronx Zoo. I said, that's genius. That is yeah. absolute genius. And it was funny because some of the people at, at uh, Crown, uh, it's, it's a couple of the women publishers, they said, well, you know, they're going to put the book in the, in, with the animals. So I said, I said here, here, here's your choice. You can call it the Bronx Zoo or I'm going to take it somewhere else. So they called it the Bronx Zoo. And sure enough, it was the biggest selling sports book of all time. And it flew off the shelves. Wow. Yeah, it did. Our friend Peter Goldenbach, who wrote the best selling sports book of all time, as well as the brand new book, Whispers of the Gods, is our guest today on Zoom into Books and the big time talker podcast, Whispers of the Gods is the new book where uh, Peter goes through his, his many dozens of interviews with legendary players and uh, throw some of the names out of, of the players in this book. They're a bunch. Well, the, Ted Williams obviously is, is, is among the most renowned. Stan Musial, of course, 
Uh, Roy Campanella was a wonderful interview. Um, Roger Maris, as I was telling you about, uh, Marty Marion, Rex Barney, Jim Brosnan, Jim Bouton. I mean, the reason I wrote this book uh, was because when I lived in Englewood, Jim Bouton lived about three blocks from me, and we were like brothers. Uh, we went everywhere together. I babysat for his children. We were on the CBS All-Star softball team for five, six years together. Um, and about three years ago, he developed dementia, and last year he died. And so I, I, I thought, what could I do to keep his memory alive? And so what I did in this Whispers of the Gods is he's, he's the first chapter where he described to me how, as a boy from New Jersey, uh, miraculously, he ended up not only playing on the New York Yankees, but becoming a star pitcher on the New York Yankees. And the last chapter is his writing of ball four and how he was blackballed after he wrote it and how terrible that hurt him. Hmm. And so that's, that's the first chapter in the 17th chapter. Uh, and, and so uh, who are some of the other players? Phil Rizzuto, Ron Santo, Ellis Clary, who I put in there because I just, his stories were so, so marvelous. He played on the 1944 and 1945 St. Louis Browns. Wow. The only time the Browns uh, made it to the World Series in 1944. And then in 45, they got a player by the name of Pete Gray. And people know that name because he only had one arm. The owners played him in center field because they thought he would be a drawer for the right. fans. Right. But it turned out that all the players hated him because he was an SOB. Uh, and, and so Ellis was telling me the things they used to do to poor Pete Gray, like take a dead fish and put it in the pocket of his, of his jacket. <laughs> I know. I know it. So, so, so uh, Tom Sturdivant, for instance, who played uh, for the New York Yankees, was a star pitcher in 1956 and 1957. Uh, he talked a great deal about Casey Stengel. He talked a lot about Mickey Mantle. Um, my favorites, one of my favorite stories, the time he and Mickey were playing golf uh, in New Jersey. And it was the ninth hole and Tom made his putt and Mickey missed his. And so coming off the green, Mickey took his putter and swung it at the limb of a tree and missed the tree and put the heel of his putter into his shin. Oh. So that he was bleeding like a stuck pig. So Tom, of course, seeing the blood in his shoe, said, Mickey, come on, we've got to get to the hospital. And Mickey says to him, the hell we are. We're going to play the back nine. <laughs> so they do. And apparently, Somehow, Mickey ended up beating him in the back nine, which made him very happy. The problem is, he's bleeding like a stuck pig, and what is he going to tell Casey Stengel? Right. So they make up this story that, 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 that they had this car, the station wagon, that somehow it was rolling downhill, and he was trying to stop it, and he got his leg caught in the door, and that's how he got hurt. <laughs> a total lie. Um, but, you know, those are the kind of stories that I love. And I figure 
If I love them, you'll love them. Incredible stories from Peter Goldenbach in the book, Whispers of the Gods. We have a great question that just came in into the chat room, Peter. Um, and it's about uh, arguably the biggest name in baseball of all time. Why is, the question is, why is Babe Ruth the most famous baseball player of all time? You know, and that's a great question. Here's a guy who played 100 years ago. So what is it about the Babe that still in 2022, people talk about that guy well, so much? it's funny that he should ask that. Because one of the people in this book is a fellow by the name of Ed Froelich. Who's Ed Froelich? He was the trainer for Joe McCarthy and the Yankees in the 20s and a trainer for uh, McCarthy and the Boston Red Sox in the 40s and a trainer with the Brooklyn Dodgers when Babe Ruth was the first base coach with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the Dodgers brought him there. In, the, in this contract, he had to take batting practice before the game every day because, again, this was somebody who was going to draw fans. Put butts in seats. Sure. Exactly. And so two of the stories Ed, Ed, Ed Froelich tells to me, which are absolutely priceless. Um, one, he says to Babe, did you really call your shot? And before I tell the story, you've got to tell me the pitcher. The, who was the Cubs pitch? Charlie Root. Okay, thank you. Charlie Root was the pitcher. And so Babe says to him, Ed, can you hear me? And Ed says, yeah, Babe, I can hear you. And Babe says, Ed, can you really hear me? And Ed says, yeah. And Babe says to him, if I had pointed to center field, Charlie Root would have thrown that baseball between my eyes and killed me. So no, I did not call my shot. Never happened. Never happened. But it turned out what was happening at the time, uh, Mark Koenig had been the shortstop for the Yankees in 1932. And halfway through the season, he had either been traded or somehow he ended up being the shortstop for the Cubs. And they ended up in the World Series. And the other Cubs players only gave Koenig a half share in the World Series money, which made Ruth furious. So Ruth was calling him every name in the book. And on that particular at bat, Ruth threw him a strike and Ruth pointed into the dugout, towards the dugout that with his one finger, meaning that's one strike. And then Ruth threw another strike and he pointed again to the dugout with two fingers which is to say that's two strikes. And that's where everybody seemed to think that he was pointing to center field. But he wasn't pointing to center field. He was pointing at the dugout. Okay. And then the next pitch, Ruth hit the ball into the center field bleachers. So after, after the Black Sox scandal of 1919, there was a lot of skepticism about the game of baseball. And it was Babe Ruth starting in 1920 with the New York Yankees hitting all those home runs who brought those fans back. So he was, in a sense, a savior of baseball. And that could you know, be a big part of it. same way Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were the saviors of baseball after that terrible baseball strike of 1994. Right. Right. When, when in that, that season, I think it was 96, the two of them uh, had that fabulous race for the home run crowd. And got people back invested yeah. in the game again. Exactly. You, you mentioned the, the Black Sox scandal, and you know, it was a great movie made about that by John Sayles called yes. Eight Men Out. Uh, 
talked about Jackie Robinson in the movie uh, 42. Chadwick Boseman was just incredible. He was, he was, he was amazing. He was Jackie. Do you have a favorite baseball movie? And if so, would you share that with us? Yeah, sure. I think my favorite baseball movie is The Natural. With Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Uh, and it's funny because I was invited to the premiere of The Natural in New York when it came out. Okay. And I love the book. Uh, I absolutely love the book. Um, and the movie was not like the book. The book was much darker. The movie, he hits a home run at the end, and uh, he hits it off into the lights of the scoreboard, and there's a lot of lights and a lot of cheering and so forth and so on. And, and it was funny. I, with my big mouth, after the movie was over, I said, boy, I hate this movie. And sitting in front of me was the director. Oh, Peter. Not funny. Not funny. Not funny at all. But subsequently, I've probably seen the movie 20 times. It brings tears to my eyes, and I adore it. So I, my apology to the director, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. <laughs> You've come around. Yeah, it's actually my favorite baseball movie. Having talked to so many of these legendary players, uh, many of whom are in the new book, Whispers of the Gods, I wonder if you think it's it's a bad thing to put uh, your sports idol on a pedestal. We've certainly seen in the last uh, couple of decades sports figures that have, have gone astray in their personal life. But look, that's been going on since Babe Ruth and probably for all time. So is it a bad thing to put those folks on a pedestal or no? Never. Never, ever, ever. Mickey Mantle was my guy. And when I was doing Dynasty, uh, I had called Mickey and he said, uh, yeah, come over to the house. He lived in, in Dallas. Come over to the house and I'll be glad to talk to you. So I fly to Dallas and I get on the phone to call the house and his wife picks up. And I said, is Mickey there? And she says, I'm sorry, Mickey's in New York. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Mickey's in New York. Okay. So on the plane, I go back to New York. Back to New York. Back to New York. And the next day, I'm in the in the clubhouse, and there's Mickey all dressed up with his, his Western cowboy wear. And I'm too in awe. I, I, this has never happened before, but I was too in awe to be able to go up to him to, to talk to him. And so... I went over to Ellie Howard, who I had interviewed already, and I said, Ellie, would you do me a favor? Would you introduce me to Mickey? And Ellie said, oh, of course, sure, no problem. So we walk over to Mickey, and Ellie introduces me, and I said, Mick, can I ask you a few questions? And Mickey looks me in the eye, and he goes, no. <laughs> and then he bursts into this laughter, this cackling, cackling laughter. And, and I interviewed him for, oh, an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And he could not have been more wonderful. And he told me things, and I have no idea why, but he told me things that he had never, ever, ever told anybody else. This was now 1973, and he had retired in 1968. And he was telling me that too often at night, he wakes up in a cold sweat after a nightmare. And this was the nightmare. He was standing outside of Yankee Stadium, and he could hear over the PA system, now batting 
In the third position, number seven, Mickey Mantle, and he couldn't find the door to get into the stadium. And he would wake up in a cold sweat. Wow. Absolutely, absolutely blew me away. Um, and it was funny because I've written one novel of all the books I've written one novel and that number that novel is not is called seven and it's the closest thing to Mickey Mantle's real true life than anything that's ever been written and when it came out the conservatives in the media um, they did to me what what they did to Bounton uh, they just they they just chopped this thing to smithereens and, and it's interesting because you know 20 30 years later People have come to appreciate what it is and what it says. And, and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Mickey Mantle because there were certainly legendary stories of, of, of Mickey's drinking and, oh, well. and, you know, a surliness. And, but that, to you, that was not a problem in terms of putting a player on a pedestal. That's did, not did a you, problem at all. Mickey, did you come Mickey, after him about, and did, did you uh, give him a hard time about flying to Dallas and him not being there? I never said a word. I never said a word. Are you kidding? Give Mickey Mantle a hard time? No. What are you crazy? No. No, I didn't do that. Um, but what I found, the thing that I found about Mickey more than anything else is that he had had a very difficult childhood. His father was abusive. And Casey Stengel was abusive in a way. Casey Stengel always felt that the more he criticized Mickey, the better Mickey would play. And that might be true, but Mickey had very, very little self-esteem. He never did quite understand why people loved him the way they loved him. Never. It's and amazing. I always felt that that was very sad. And that's a large part of what my book seven is about. So but which one to you is... Uh, your favorite. Do you have a favorite Peter Golenbach book? No, I've got about 14 of them, actually. Uh, Dynasty, obviously, was the most important. Yeah. Because had I not written Dynasty, um, I wouldn't be an author. And I guess the Bronx Zoo would have to come next. Because if I hadn't written the Bronx Zoo, I wouldn't have had a career. Sure. It so paved I, the way. I would start with those two. And what makes me so thrilled about this particular book uh, is that I had a great deal of difficulty getting a publisher to buy it. You know, I kept getting back from these major publishers. Nobody reads baseball books anymore. And I have no idea where that nonsense comes from or came from, but it was very disheartening. Um, and so, so the success of this book to me um, I'm just thrilled. I'm just absolutely thrilled about it. And it is a, a great success. Number one new release in baseball biographies, a top seller in baseball books, sports history books uh, from a guy that has been around the bases more than once, Peter Goldenbach, baseball historian, New York Times bestselling author. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. It's, a, it's been a pleasure, Burke, really. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Whispers of the Gods. Check it out at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. Many thanks to our friends at Headline Books for hosting us today on their Zoom Into Books platform and for the Big Time Talkers podcast. I'm Burke Allen here in our studios in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being with us. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.